Let's get into the word and greetings to Christy and Zachary. We are delighted. <laughs> that was a back, that was a back wave. <laughs> uh, we're delighted that you can join us today and thanks for sending the video. Uh, Zachary was up early this morning getting exercised on, so he was throwing some balls around. So at any rate, good to see you, Zach and Christy. And uh, turn with me to Second Samuel. We're going to go back to where we took a brief hiatus from. You're in Second Samuel with us. We're going to be picking it up in chapter 16. Second Samuel chapter 16. And uh, Stephen prayed us in on that. So we'll just go ahead and get moving on it. The life of David, David now evidently in his what you would call less than formative years, meaning he's an older guy right now, but in his age, he's continuing to learn of his trusting confidence in the Lord through a very difficult season in which a conspiracy from those closest to him have provoked now a need to leave Jerusalem. That's what we looked at last time. And in that departure, David was brokenhearted. It was the city of the great king. David had come into it not by force, but by sovereignty. And everything about the city was that which he had commissioned and done for God. He had great sentiment there. The story doesn't lack failure, nor does any person here lack failure in your life. But what God says to all of us is that regardless, can he see and find faithfulness in us? Failure very often can be the excuse as to why you cannot be faithful. But on the reciprocal of that, when you are faithful, you'll be amazed at what God does in spite of your failures. And this is why David was one documented as having a heart that was fashioned after God's. He was malleable. When difficulties came, though he felt the consequence of them, he was easily impressed by the Lord. And rather than staying in a state of depression, he chose to press into God and to take the next step. And that's why it's an inspiring story. Today's account, which I'm going to try to go to a full extent in this chapter, I've simply titled A Liar, A Loser, and An Evil Influencer. I've started to title pretty much everything that's been taught from the pulpit because as a singer and a songwriter, I realize that that catchphrase can be for us something that provokes thoughtfulness or perhaps even a difference of opinion that then needs to be put before the Lord and what he's sharing with you and 
what you're going through. And titles can certainly be clever. And I think most of us strive not simply to have clever titles, but meaningful ones. I think this is meaningful in terms of where David's at presently. As he has made the ascent and where we were at in the closure of verse 37 of the previous chapter, his head was covered. There's indication he was barefooted and weeping with the entourage that had left Jerusalem with him. Groaning in his spirit, he was praying for God to answer him and in belief that the Lord would hear his prayer. And what we were introduced to is that almost at the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives, which is where that story was taking place, leaving Jerusalem, up, crossing over the Kidron, probably having a flow of water in this season, and towards the pinnacle of that area that would have been lush and olive trees, a place David would have been familiar with devotionally, groaning, he runs into what the scriptures qualify as a friend, Hushai. It's interesting because Hushai's name means haste. As David uttered a groaning prayer in what you would call a very sorrowful moment, but one in which he was believing, he runs into what the scriptures qualify as a friend. A friend who by name comes in haste, and a friend who by the qualification of David assessing why he's here, dispatches him and this friend leaves in haste. He comes in haste, he leaves in haste. One, to come to the aid of his king, and two, to do the bidding of his king. He wanted to remain with David, but David said, you'll do me more good to go on into the city, or you can pair up with Abiathar. You'll do better with me there to be with men that I already have in place taking care of the things that are important to me. And that's the repositioning of the ark. The ability to conduct services of overt worship. There's a change right now in the political scene, but I need God to remain back. And if it is his pleasure to return me, then I shall return. And if in any way in which I have displeased God and he corrects me outside of the city, then so be it. That's God. So Hushai is a friend. And he's a picture of what God does when we need a friend. He does have a friend for us. The important thing that we also can see when we talk about friendship is that at times it's very often disguised in someone we did not expect. He didn't expect Hushai. And though we could research and find out where in the lineage of David's overseeing of the city, he's kind of a mystery to us right now. He just comes. Have you ever been mysteriously met by one dispatched by God to be a friend to you, coming in haste and being willing to be dispatched in haste according to your need. The scriptures tell us that 
there is one that sticks closer to you than a brother. It's a picture of who Jesus is. See, even though some of us may have challenges at times, naming the name of a friend who comes in haste and perhaps indeed leaves in haste, there is one who sticks closer to you than a brother or a sister. And it's really important that God receive the sincerity of that understanding by you. We very often take our cues on what it's like to be left out. God knows what that's like because he gets left out of a lot of things. But the one thing he wants you to know is he's in whatever it is that your need is that he can satisfy as one who makes haste in hearing, one who makes haste in coming, one who makes haste in the dispatch of taking care of your business. That's the encouragement. In the beginning of chapter 16, characters are coming into play, and they're different than Hushai. They would be what we call in the political climate of today, bad actors. So many terms are being used today that literally are coming out of movies that date back to the 40s. But they're contemporary. But we call people on the political horizon that are up to no good bad actors. Sometimes we can be bad actors too. And we're on the spiritual horizon. But these sincerely are individuals that lack a love for God, a respect and admiration for David, and they all are about doing their own thing for an outcome that they will be very sorrowfully disappointed never to come to them. Very often that is what happens is that when individuals are caught up in satisfying themselves, and especially in times where there is great tumult on the political and cultural scene, then a instinct that is carnal rather than spiritual begins to motivate them for what they will do and what they'll sell themselves out for in the doing of it. So that certainly speaks of integrity and of character, and these individuals seemingly lack all of that. It does seem to be that they have a history with David that dates back quite a ways. And probably somewhere in that history, they started off well. On the other end, somewhere in this interim period where perhaps they got old and rather than renewed in the spirit, as we see, David had been so noted for a psalmist, an administrator, things that certainly he could have done better at, but nothing that could have compared to his transparency with God. So, bad actors. But remember, this chapter starts off with a renewed friendship. The Lord would say, what about the chapter of your life now? What about a renewed friendship with God? 
And sometimes we want the terms of that renewed friendship to be in the ideal, and God says, it's not in the ideal. It's dealing with you in the unexpected. It's favoring you when you didn't expect what happened happened. And I know that you know stories of people that are going through difficult times right now. But we have the same God. His purpose is the same for all of us. It's to get us through it. And because of our political climate and our cultural perversions, do we need to get through this together? And with God, most certainly, our confident shepherd. He's confident in what he's doing with us. He's consummate, and now he's handling us. We're simply getting to know what these guys did. The first one that's introduced to us as David has made this ascent shortly after dismissing Hushai, David was a little past the top of the mountain. He made it to the precipice of his sorrow. Normally we think of the precipice, that place in which we get the overview of the desert and the valley. It's our kind of like, whoo, moment. David is at the precipice, and it's simply a moment that right now he's not fully aware of what has happened. Precipice moments are great as long as we do not make presumption about what it is we see and what it is we hear. We're never to be misled by a break in the difficulty. Rather, we're to be led even more strongly with eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that are fashioned after God, and the willingness to be obedient. Hushai was hasty. We have heard it said, haste makes waste, but waste requires haste. There are things that happened in which there are casualties in what we have also heard described as a wasteland, and it requires expediency. It requires obedience. This is what he would be known for, coming to David's aid and being dispatched without argument to David's knees. David, as he reaches this precipice, is by no means saying, I've made it, I'm there. Which is why it's important that we also, in the precipice moments, must not err saying, I've made it, I'm there. I found actually that in Colorado, being a mile up in the Denver area, which for many would say, that's a precipice moment, I'm breathing really hard. It's like, where's my oxygen tank? I never thought that just being a mile up would be any big deal. But I am drawing breath, and I'm dehydrated. It's a precipice moment, but I know why I'm there, and I can't simply dismiss the fact that even greater tenacity is required of me in that zone it's beautiful there, but there's also a deep work that's going on there that's translating into my life 
through Zachary's life, through Chrissy's life, it is a precipice moment. We're seeing many things being done by God. Many things we're believing yet to be done by him, but by no means do we mistake. It takes tenacity to breathe in the difficulty. You've got to drink your water. I love coffee, but it's not the same as simply pure water because it acts as a diuretic. If you're medically inclined, you know that what comes in goes out very quickly. Therefore, when you think you've got your water in you, you don't. All of these things are factors that need to be accounted for. David right now is factoring things based on what it is he sees and hears, but what yet he still has to discover in the precipice moment. He'll go beyond the mountain because right now he's doing everything that he can to avoid an insurrection that would become a bloody outcome to those whom he is with and to the sacking of Jerusalem by his son. He's mindful that this temperamental rebellious son has the ability with those who have followed him to totally torch the city and start something new, to take his father's name out. Sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? The torching of cities, the changing of names for whatever reason, the cancel culture for whatever reason. Maybe we are in a contemporary version of this very thing. I know this, if David's an example of what you do when there are bad actors, then the example is you stay with the good shepherd. The servant meets him at the top of the mountain. There was Ziba. His name is an interesting name. In the Hebrew, it means plant. I like it already. The narration moves by his name. He is a plant. What type of plant is he? What type of plant are we? See, plant on one side of this, perhaps culturally and politically, is... He's involved in espionage. He's an undercover agent. Actually, this is what, in fact, we will discover he's doing. He's changing his allegiance from one who he had been commissioned to tend in faithfulness to now thinking only about himself and what he can get realizing David's vulnerability. He's in a moment right now in which he's simply looking out after only himself and abandoning his first charge. The enemy works to do these kinds of things in our life where we abandon what we once had been commissioned to remain faithful at and what happens is we look to another source, another means by which we can find ourselves more easily being satisfied. Faithfulness is a hard thing to find these days. Faithfulness was not going to be an attribute that Ziba would be noted for. David right now makes an inquiry it indicates because Ziba, it says, was the servant of Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth was the son, younger, of Jonathan. When David came into the city, he asked, Is there anyone that remains of Saul's household that I can do good for? And there was this, well, there is one. It's Jonathan's son. Bring him to me. And Mephibosheth in Scripture has a very interesting incident that happened to him. He, too, was, if you would, paralyzed by no fault of his own. He was carried. He was dropped as a baby. And it would indicate that he had no means of being able to move as once he could have. He needed to be tended with frequency. He was completely hopeless and helpless without friends, without the dispatch of those in authority, kind of like what we find ourselves in spiritually as well. We can know that that applies physically to us. Many of you have come through a season in which you're not in the vital strength that you once were in. And yet the illustration isn't simply to distract from where this is going. It's saying Mephibosheth was overwhelmed by David's grace, for he was invited to dine perpetually at the table of the king. And the focus is always not on the temporal. It points to the spiritual. We're invited always to dine at the table of the king. That's why church is so important where we dine at the table of the king. Mephibosheth was a very special person to David. And David's inquiry is simply, huh, what are you doing here? And he notes that in the observation, he's met and there's a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread and 100 clusters of raisin and 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. He's coming with a payload of provision for David on his exit. We saw when someone else in David's life did that, that was Abigail, who had married a notorious person named Nabal, whose name means foolish. And she saw what offense her husband had committed against the king of Israel. For in faith, she believed that in fact he was God's anointed, even though Saul was still in Jerusalem and on the throne and pursuing David. But she saw in the eyes of faith, David, you're king, and I've come to you that you might not provoke an unnecessary turn of events by violating in your anger towards my husband, what he deserves, I bring you all of these goods, provisions for all of your men that my husband should have given to you and didn't. See, her heart was right to stop what would have been an incident that would have provoked a correction from God because David would have taken into his hands that which he shouldn't. He acknowledged what she did honored her in receiving it. And that's a contrast to what this guy's doing. Where did these come from? You have to understand, Ziba's a servant. 
He doesn't have an inventory of these things. Where did it come from? So the logic behind this is that they came from Mephibosheth. We're going to hear language that indicates why he's there. In fact, we'll get a clue to this couple chapters later. What I'm saying is, is that he made the inference that this was all about him. It was from Ziba's heart to David's heart. It was for David's people. He's one of them. It was for a guy that's not sure how it's going to work out in Jerusalem for him. And he sees David on the run. He's going to get himself in position between two opportunities. Who is going to take me? Who's going to do good for me? And so in doing that, creating the illusion that he's the one that's dispensing this from his own resources, it must be assumed that it was actually for Mephibosheth to convey to David, I know what's going on. I'm in a situation right now in which I cannot come in haste, but I send you these provisions in haste to let you know that I'm with you. This was a cool thing for him to do. It was an uncomely thing for Ziba to do, to take credit for that which he could not have made. This kind of generosity available. And so one of the things here we see is a character flaw, many. But it's what happens when people try to position themselves to get between two possibilities of what's best for them, not what's best for God, not what's with the heart of God. And so this is defined right now by the king, David, saying to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys, they're, they're for your household. You can ride on them, the bread, the summer fruits, all of these things. And the wine's for those so that they don't faint, those who are perishing it so that they do not faint, so they can forget about this hardship. And then the king said to Ziba, verse 3, and where is your master's son? The implication here is that he's rooting Ziba back to this point. You were Saul's servant, and his son, Mephibosheth, is the one that I asked you to take care of when I came into the city and asked who was of the household of Saul and Mephibosheth came to my attention and it was Jonathan's son hurt I took him in and I made sure that you were the overseer of his welfare where's your master's son Ziba said to the king indeed he is staying in Jerusalem for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. And so the king said to Ziba, hear all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. It's the first bad actor at least in this sequence of the teaching, who is now noted for lying. One who comes as a plant, one who, in my opinion, is engaged in a form of espionage.
He's a double agent. And he's lying. And he's taking credit for bringing to David that which Mephibosheth had given his provision for. Sounds like a contemporary drama, doesn't it? Here's what we know with regard to the issue of lying. Jesus addressed it. You can take note of this or listen to me read it. Verse 43, and this would be of John chapter 9, 8, excuse me, John chapter 8. Jesus addresses this issue with regard to where is the origin of such malpractice or practicing maybe what we would call today malware? <laughs> Why do you not understand my speech, Jesus says in 43 of chapter 8, Gospel of John, because you are not able to listen to my word. This is the problem with lies. They create, rather than a distinct understanding of truth, it becomes indistinct and we become confused and we become easily able to find ourselves believing in that contrary to God's will and his word. God is light. God is truth. And then these virtues God dispenses righteousness. He's a holy God. It's why when today there is such confusion, it's because we have become a culture of liars. A word that I didn't really realize goes back farther than what you most frequently see it used today is spin. There's something that is being emphasized in today's voicing that makes something sound acceptable, reasonable, let's get behind it. When in fact, God would say, that's not simply a fabrication, that is a lie. And it is not for me. And when lies are committed, perpetuated, when they're upheld, and when truth is being held in bondage, then we see this. And that is simply People cannot listen to his words. They can no longer hear it. It's not that they wouldn't be open to it. It's that their ears have closed to it. It's the consequence of a culture that lies to itself and lies about God, lies about others. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer. He's speaking of Satan. From the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. These weren't the resources of Ziba. These were the resources of Mephibosheth. And David had resourced the provision of a servant from the household of Saul that would take care of him. That was truth. Ziba finds himself with all of these things. David questions it for a moment but he believes in the language that was offered because he lacked detail. 
I'm sure his head is swelling. That's why the vulnerability of a culture that lies about itself and to itself and disregarding God is vulnerable to not necessarily making decisions that are right. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. It's one thing to claim you are of God, but indeed, if you are a part of a culture that embraces lying as its chief attribute, it's very difficult to claim that when in the presence of God. Back to the story, though, right now. This is as it rests. David hearing a lie and yet not discerning, questioning. He takes this man at his word, which was a lie, and basically gives the entire inheritance of Mephibosheth to Ziba, who was unworthy, will be proven a liar. And you'll see something on that end of it later. But we need to be careful about decisions we make that are hasty without the full objectivity of truth. It's why we stick to the word. And when people want to stick things on us, when they want to poke us with the sticks that say change for us, make this decision on behalf of us, we have to be able to say, if it is not grounded in truth, it will not get an up vote for me. I won't embrace it, nor will I embrace you. I will tell you the truth, and if you want to respond to it, I will share with you the rest of the journey and the necessity of knowing who is convicting your heart. But I will not oblige myself in only a part of your side based on a lie that's in full intended to mislead you and to take you down. And to, I'm not going to participate in that. We need to have people that are able to say that. That's a lie. That's truth. That's light. That's darkness. That's sin. So what we need to know is that where we're at, which is truly on the pinnacle of both testing and trial, but a vision, we need to say, Lord, that what I'm going through, and it's hard, though I know I feel without friends, you are my friend. And wherever I may be moved from this point, going down, going back, I'm trusting you. But I will be a messenger that asks for discernment, and I will speak words that can be anchored in the word of truth to save someone's soul, to save my soul, to save me from the consequence of errant decision-making. Ziba, character number one, liar number one, espionager, a plant who becomes a mole. And so as it rests right now, without Mephibosheth even being clued, he's lost everything to the whim of this guy.
who took credit for the things that he sent to David. So remember this. There are things that God will give you and you will release them. And at times you'll wonder what happened to them and the enemy will taunt you saying they never got there or I caused there to be a doubt about the intentions of it. God keeps an inventory in everything that you've released to the king. It's an important truth. Though there may be misunderstandings, God keeps an inventory of everything that you've released to the king. He never has missed anything that has been given to him for the purpose of bringing glory. Ziba fades right now. Mephibosheth has lost everything, though he's not aware of it at this time. But another one comes on the scene at this precipice moment, Shimei. Shimei would be, in the title of today's teaching, a loser. It's interesting, though. There are several Shimei's or spellings, renderings of it, but it's very likely that he was a vineyard keeper under Saul. He was the Saul man. He was one that loved Saul. He was rewarded by Saul. Remember, Saul bought off the people. If they were complaining, he bought them off. We've had that done in politics today, haven't we? We satisfy the people who are discouraged and we promise them everything in order for them to remain encouraged and our thing, our side. Church doesn't do that, but political parties do. And this right now is where this individual goes back historically. David knew of him. This individual, though, in this case, is very much offended with David. For he has not accepted that this is the David that has a heart that follows after God. He was a one-party man. He was a Saul only. And as a result of that, bitterness crept into his soul. And he was going to now justify what he's about to be seen doing in denigrating David in a time of deep sorrow and humiliation. When King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, this describes him, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out cursing continuously as he came. So he comes from the precipice down to this area. And interestingly enough, his name means renown. Of all the things that he may have done in faithfulness under Saul and during, obviously, a tenure with David, he probably still exercised taking care of a vineyard somewhere. It might have been even in this very area. But when he's in the line of sight with David, when he can give David an earful, 
This is what he will be renowned for, not taking care of a vineyard for a king or kings. He will be renowned, known by everybody for what it is he says. Though it's hidden, it seems to be blasphemous statements in a temper tantrum because he cannot accept David and hates him. He comes out, he begins to curse continuously. So however you define cursing, this is what's happening. Whatever words you've heard, these are being spoken. And it says continuously, he doesn't stop. He rants, he raves. Do you remember the term raves? I think it came back in like the 80s or 90s. A rave was really just a mash pot of, I think it probably derived from a mosh pit, which became a mash pot. But it was really when people just went berserk and it was acceptable. You threw yourself into people. You, you didn't care about the welfare of people. You were in this big, giant circus. And he doesn't care. He's being seen as one now, facing off with a king. And remember, David has mighty men with him. This is how incensed he is, not even to know that they could lop off his head. But continuously came, he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left hand. David is surrounded by those who could easily defend him. Also, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. Well, David would not be known from God's perspective as that man. He was a warrior. He was as much a warrior as those who on Saul's side endeavored to kill him. There's no pretension that David was involved in battle. That would be like somebody yelling at me for what my father did in a Corsair or an SBD in World War II. I have no idea, consequence or whatever. I know he was a warrior. I admire him from that advantage and not from any other detail. Lives get lost in battle, and some people lose their lives, meaning their reason to live because of the consequence of war, the hardship of it. We call that altogether something different today in the psychology. But this man is degrading David for being actually a hero for Israel. He took on giants. He cleaned up the Philistines. That should have been Saul's job. David took it on. He was a master in putting a force of offense against those who were perpetual enemies of Israel. And David was the defender. And he's being lightly esteemed, cursed for doing a work of defense and of offense on behalf of God for the children of Israel. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you were caught in your own evil. 
because you are a bloodthirsty man. That actually was not the full account. It was a biased account. And he actually was in deep error to say these things against David. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Now, he's not a new man introduced to us. He would be respectively a nephew of David's. His sister had him. He was paired up with a man still on the scene too, Joab. They were brothers. And Nabashai says in defense of David, I'll take off Shimei's head for what he's saying to you. The king said, what have I to do with you? You sons of Zariah, so let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? So this is really important, too, in, in this other character. There are people who would define themselves as justified in what it is they say to you and how it is they say it and what they are willing to do to destroy your reputation. There's a time in which you say, I know who is my source of truth. I know the one whom I've given my life to. It is slander. There may be some things that are in part reasonable to say, in my youth, guilty. In that situation, erred. With those individuals, I wronged them. But this was one in which the entire reputation of an individual who had followed God had repented in the seasons of his disobedience and had been restored by God. That's the important thing to remember. Every person gets an opportunity to be restored by God and to be treated in that restorative state of what God has done redemptively. We don't give people much opportunity for that these days. In fact, that's one of the reasons why you have this epidemic of what's called the cancel culture. They will go back and flag people for what they said 30, 40 years ago and try to make issue with what it is you are today. I'm glad that God does not do that with me, let alone two seconds ago or yesterday. And so in this scenario right now, one of his own, those men that are allegiant to him, says, I'll take care of the situation. David says, I'm allowing God to do what is necessary for me to have a greater confidence in who he is. It's why sometimes zipping the lip is in fact the discipline that's required of us in the moment in which something else could be done with your authority. Sometimes we have to take the uncomfortable utterance of people and what they may say that we might have a greater understanding of what the Lord endured. Do you realize he was disrespected by those whom he came to save? The entire Sanhedrin, with exception of a few named, were against him. They mocked him publicly. They laughed about him. They conspired to kill him. And what do we see Jesus doing? Moving from point to person 
to place, trusting in his heavenly father, our heavenly father, for the outcome, which was one, two, three years yet to come. Life is sometimes what we have to plow through, even though what we want to live in is the harvest, we have to plow the field and we have to be sown into it as well with tears that come. But this is one thing that seems to be evident right now is David's heart to trust the Lord when he could have said, yeah, the way I'm feeling right now, take him out. But he just says, this is of the Lord. Therefore, one thing that perhaps is good for us to remember is how many situations do we come into or have come from in which rather than say, this is from the Lord, but rather, I'm going to make this personal. I got some power. I got some friends in high places that are actually of low degree. And it's a hard thing to do. Most of us have nightmares of what it was like to be made fun of as little kids. I dealt with that all the time as a teacher. But one of the things that made me sensitive towards that is because I also experienced at times in school very early being made fun of. It was being made fun of that actually made me a better person when I saw that go on. And it taught me how to handle it with decorum, being able to see the difficulty between two points of thought and behaviors which were totally different. And so what I'm saying is that when we take the incidences which are assaulting and insulting, they degrade us, but we put it before the Lord, it only is a season by which the Lord allows that to be permitted. God allowed me to go through one season as a teacher in which the majority of my, my class would mock me. I'd never had that happen ever in eight years of teaching. I was a teacher that parents would try to sign their kids up for. The other great teachers, I'm just saying, one year, and in particular, a Christian school. <laughs> and these guys endeavored to shred me. I got through it. That was one of the toughest years in academia I'd ever gone through. Eight years of experience handling anywhere from 25 to 40 kids in a classroom. And I was in a classroom of like 16. And except for two that the Lord who put in that classroom, who are grown men now, and a gal. They're, they're all grown up. But the Lord allowed me to move through that season, trusting in him. But every day I got up at 4 o'clock to pray, God, be with me today, because these guys are terrorists. <laughs> I had the tax put on my chair. I had chalk that exploded. Whatever it is that was designed to take a teacher out was in that Christian school. But it is interesting because over the years, God did, as he delivered me from that into ministry, he brought some of them back to me, actually in Mexico, to say, I am so sorry for what I did. We were brutal. You were forgiven. Go have beans and rice now and dwell among us in peace. So in this right now, 
He is a sore loser and he is spiritually a loser. And God wants to make sure that in any area that we have the tendency from a hurt to be a sore loser, we need to be turning that around and allowing God to have the victory in what appears to be our loss, but to him and for him will be a greater a greater work of God to change the disposition. See, the disposition of those kids, they changed once they became older and they saw that what they did was immature. I saw what God did in sustaining me when I wanted to run from it. He escorted me back to the school every single day. And I remember in the time that I was there, there was one occasion in which I said, God, would you give me peace in this classroom? just one day of peace in this classroom that I can take no credit for. I came in the class, started preparing two hours in advance, so like whatever, six to eight kids came in. They sat down just like divine angels. I would ask them to do something and they did it. They had received no lecture from me. They had received no correction from the principal. It was God meeting me at the point of need that I had to see a friend in the classroom. And it was extraordinary. The entire day of peace. <laughs> it was only guaranteed that one day, though. <laughs> Back to the shaping of the character of Rich Ablett. David was able to say, this is of the Lord. Let him alone. Let him curse. It is of the Lord. The Lord's ordered this to take place. He's doing something in my heart. He's provoking me to trust him more. When I have the power and authority to completely dismiss this guy, to dispatch this guy, I'm going to let him say what it is the Lord's permitting him. Curses, blasphemy, disrespect, I'm going to let it take its place. I'm not going to fight it. You guys have shown me, one, the willingness, if you would, to take him on. Thank you. Take your seat. Don't worry about it. Sometimes... It's important to say, I know you want to take my defense, but I can't let you defend me. You can pray for me, but you can't take my defense right now. I must suffer offense right now in this moment. I must be brought low. Because every time that the Lord allows us to be brought low, guess what he does? He lifts us up. That's what Psalm 40 declares. He takes us from that miry clay, lifts us up, puts our feet upon a rock. And so this Shimei is indeed one who we would say is a loser because he missed the principle of what he in faithfulness had been assigned to do perhaps at one time but now no longer had a heart to do so. He's just going along the cliff bank, throwing rocks, throwing a tantrum. He's being a contemporary word, an insurrectionist. Verse 12, notably, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. What a great word to close on. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction right now. Notice this. And he doesn't say, and pay that guy back 10 times over. It says he's going to look on my affliction 
and that the Lord will repay me, notice with this, not vengeance, with good for his cursing this day. What if we said, Lord, I have felt accursed, I am being cursed at, I am being slandered. Lord, for every word that I have heard that's broken my heart, for every situation that has been conspiratorial, if I could ask you, like Rich asked for peace for one classroom, if you did that for him, may I ask that in this situation where I've not taken things into my own hand, I'm giving you permission to allow those people to say that thing. Could I ask that I be repaid by you with good? And you just let whatever good that is going to be, God's choice, good, repaid, good, because you endured the curse. Do you realize that we do have good that has been given to us because Jesus endured the curse upon him? Good way to look at it. Because he endured the curse for us, you know that the outcome is good if you are willing to endure as well. A time and season in which the curse has been pronounced on you. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed. He went through stones at him, kicked up dust. And now the king and all the people who were with him because weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Notice this. It's interesting. Rocks are being th thrown. Slanders continued to be uttered. And they are weary. And it says, and so they refreshed themselves there. They refresh themselves in the place in which they are being attacked, slandered. Dirt's dust flying, stones probably getting close, if not conking some of them. And it says they're choosing to refresh themselves there. May I say that for us, refresh yourself in the place most unlikely. Take an opportunity to ask, Lord, the rocks are flying, the dust is choking me, Refresh me in this place. I will accept it. I want to make my stand here that you might lift me up. Just a thought. That's where we'll conclude right now. And you get merit badges you endured greatly.